So good morning again, church. Hope you're doing well. We're continuing in our series through the book of John, and we're still in the upper room discourse. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room. Remember that last week I skipped ahead a bit to cover the idea of our grief turning into joy. And so we're going to go back to the beginning part of that section this week, and now talking about the Holy Spirit. We spoke before about the Holy Spirit a, couple, a few weeks back, and we talked about how the Spirit was called the paraclete, which is translated multiple different ways, counselor, helper, comforter, advocate, and more. And we talked about how one of the principal roles of the Holy Spirit is to argue against our own heart and show us the truth of the gospel. And what I mean by that, I just want, for those of you who weren't there, is often our hearts like to lie to us. Our emotions like to lie to us. It likes to say to ourselves, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. Or often it goes the other way and says, you got this. You're all good. You can save yourself. And what the paraclete does, what the Holy Spirit does, so often first and foremost, is to argue against ourselves and gives us the gospel truth. That says, you're not, that's right, you're not good enough, but Jesus is. And he loves you enough. You can't save yourself, that's right but he gives you worth and dignity because you're made in his image. I want so desperately for us to see the importance of knowing the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's incredible role in our life. We are desperately in need of the Spirit. Last night, Gina and I had our international students over. This is our second time this semester of having our international students over for dinner. And we had a good old-fashioned barbecue. We had some baby back ribs, some gourmet mac and cheese, some uh, chicken and barbecue and green beans. It was delicious. I don't know why I'm sharing all that with you. I just wanted to share that with you. I share it with you because I made the mac and cheese and it's good. And we had a great time. I mean, we really did. We, had, we talked about everything from travel to culture to politics to how to make friends, um, just everything. And afterwards, Gina looked at me and said something along the lines of, you know, we only have one more meeting with these students this semester. Um, we need to make sure that we share the gospel. How do we share the gospel in a clear and defined way with them? If we only have one more meeting, it's important to us. How do we share the gospel well? And we've been sharing about who we are. We've been telling stories about who we are and what we do. It's, it's kind of easier for me because I'm like, hey, I'm a pastor. What's a pastor? Oh, I can talk to you about that. So we just start talking about that stuff. But we also talked about who Jesus is to us. But we really want to make sure they heard the gospel fully, all of it. So we started talking about this task last night. We were talking about this task, and it brought to mind something for me. The gospel is crazy. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is crazy. I mean, for most of us who grew up in America, it doesn't seem that crazy. Right? We sort of kind of grew up hearing the elements of it. You know, The idea of a cross isn't that foreign to us because we see crosses everywhere growing up in America. Or the elements of somebody dying on our behalf or God becoming man and sin and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy stuff if you didn't grow up on it, but because if you grew up in American culture, it's been kind of infused in literature and media, and it's just kind of there, so it doesn't seem that crazy to you. But for other people, it's huge. It's different. It's radical. It's, it's a crazy concept when you really think about it. I, thought, I started thinking about the early church and started thinking about what were they saying to people and how could they possibly believe Right? And I remember this article that I read by, um, by Tim Keller, and, um, and it's just pretty, it captured really well the, the kind of the question I had, this thought. And he talks about this, this is what it says. Tim Keller says, Jesus sends out a bunch of illiterate fishermen and the like, people of no significant power. 
They're in a country that at that time in the world has virtually no political clout. And he says, go out there and turn the world upside down. Go out there and make disciples. Go out there and advance the kingdom. What? You have to realize what the message is. The Christian message is such a, a weird, radical, untenable message. It's just not plausible. The, um, for us, there's a plausibility to it, but for them, this is just so foreign of a concept. This Jewish fisherman had to go out to their fellow citizens and say, guess what? Yahweh, the uncreated creator, the transcendent king of the universe, the great God became a penniless preacher, son of a carpenter, was crucified, deliverer of the nation, and even the best of you unclean, you get to believe in him and have salvation. How well is that gonna go over to their peers? Or imagine this, they're going to the Greeks and to the Romans, and the Greeks and Romans believed in philosophy at that time, kind of past the mythology age, and started believing in Aristotle and Plato about these cosmic ideals of beauty and justice. And these Christian missionaries, they go to the Greeks and the Romans and say, guess what? Your idea of truth that you're looking for, your ideals became a person in particular in history. Not only that, not only did they become a person, but it was an executed criminal in a backwater Roman colony. And by the way, you philosophers, you guys are lost and you guys are completely missing it. What? How could that possibly go over well? The questions historians have to ask is why in the world did anybody listen to these fishermen? What do they have to offer? Why of all the religions vying for supremacy and ascendancy at that time, did Christianity have the message that went against cultural and religious sensibilities at the time that, but that was, for some reason started gaining traction? for some reason started gaining support. How in the world did it get off the ground? Some people could say, well, they had dedicated followers. They had fanatical followers. Every religion, I think, does, right? Every religion has sincere, good-hearted fanatics who are willing to die for their faith. That doesn't explain it. Not only that, Jesus says this. Oh, by the way, one little thing before you go on your mission of changing the world, advancing the kingdom, and you know, sharing the gospel. Um, your captain, the, the, great, the best player on your team, your Zion, yeah, he's gonna get killed right before you go out to battle. Um, now go out there and change the world. Anybody get the Zion reference, by the way? Just for, so people are like, Zion? I was talking about Duke's basketball player, Zion, just throwing that out there. It's crazy. The gospel is nuts. It doesn't make any sense. Why would the world, with the people of that time, and the philosophies that they believed in, where they believed in either a multitude of gods, or a philosophy that talks about ideal situation, or a Jewish religion that talks about holiness and purity and following the law, could also all of a sudden believe that the God creator of the universe came into the son of a carpenter, lived as a poor itinerant preacher, and died upon a cross. That doesn't make any sense. How in the world could that religion take traction? How in the world could that go past just a little group of little people that might have kind of knew Jesus? How could it possibly have grown to what it became? Jesus says this, I will send this missionary, I will send the spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. How in the world did it happen? Guys, can I tell you? The Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? How in the world did this religion take fruit? How did it enter into the hearts of people? It wasn't because Paul and Peter and all these awesome people were so much better at communicating. It wasn't because they were cooler. It wasn't because they had a better strategy than anybody else. No, it was the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of the people. 
Do you hear that? It was the Holy Spirit who convicted the world. These people pull off the crazy because they have the Holy Spirit. Now, our, our task now is just as crazy. We need the Holy Spirit just as much. Oh God, may we see how big our task is and not get overwhelmed, but instead rely on the Spirit more to accomplish your will. The mission of the Spirit is what we're talking about today. And there's a threefold, if you're taking notes, three-point mission of the Spirit. Three parts of the mission that we see in this text. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit guides into truth. And number three, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So I'll say those things again. Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit guides into truth. And three, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Guys, can we see our need for the Holy Spirit? And we look at the task before us and say, not say because culturally Christianity is more known in this culture, that's, oh, it's no big deal. Because people grew up kind of hearing the gospel, it's not a big deal. No, may we start saying, this is a radical concept, the gospel. And we need the Holy Spirit to change hearts. You guys with me? Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. This conviction, first of all, that the Spirit brings is something that only the Spirit can bring. When He comes, when He when he comes, when the Spirit comes, when the other helper comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness, Jesus says. They will be convicted of this sinfulness. And that's how it happened. Is that on the day of Pentecost, I want you to hear this. On the day of Pentecost, of which this is kind of prophecy of, they judged him and thought him to merely be a good teacher. The world around him judged him. Pentecost came and only the disciples, and even then they were like, I'm not sure what's happening at this point. And it was a worldly view, and then the Spirit came, and they were convicted of their sins. They were convicted that they had never believed in Him. The ones who the Spirit came to, those thousands of people who heard the gospel that moment Peter preached, they were the same ones who were around when Jesus was crucified. Religious people heard appalling truth that they had participated in the crucifixion of the Son of God. Do you understand that when the Spirit comes, that's what He does? He shows us all that we're sinners. He shows us that we're unworthy of the least of God's mercy. He convicts us that unbelief in Jesus is a sin. I love this word convict. It's in the Greek words, elekko, elekko, elekko. I'm gonna say it like that. It's an extremely interesting word. It means cross-examine someone to show them their error. It's the work of a prosecutor, okay? To convict somebody means to get them on the witness stand, to cross-examine them, asking them a lot of hard questions. You guys, you guys ever watch like Law and Order or something like that? You know, or any of those like lawyer shows. I love that stuff. Because like somehow they're always able to like shout out something like, I want the truth, which is not law and order. That's a few good men, but that's what I think of now. <laughs> I love those shows because you're able to somehow manipulate and communicate and argue in such a manner. Because I love arguing. My wife hates it, but I love arguing. But you're arguing in such a manner that you get the truth to come out. But I think this is so interesting that it's, it's asking the hard questions, cross-examining, to undo the actual fabric of the person's view of things, which is a really odd statement to make about the Spirit. See, Jesus, again, uses the word Spirit. He calls him the paraclete. What was the paraclete a couple of weeks ago? I said, what was the definition I just said even earlier today of the paraclete again? What do we call him also? Advocate. Advocate, it almost means like a defense attorney. He's your helper. He's the one arguing for you. Now don't you see, Jesus is being paradoxical by saying the advocate will come to prosecute. In verse 7 he says, this is your advocate, he's your defense attorney. But in verse 6 and 8 he says, he has come to cross-examine you, to prosecute you, to show you your error. 
He's doing this intentionally. Your advocate, the Holy Spirit, is also the one who's cross-examining you, who's also bringing forth sin and truth to your life. How can this be? How can my defense attorney act as a prosecutor at the same time? Guys, the answer is not hard. You see it all the time, don't you? If you love somebody and they're engaged in deluded or, or self-destructive behavior, you, you get rough on them, don't you? I always say it this way, if someone's walking to the Grand Canyon, they're oblivious, and they got their headphones on, and they're just kind of walking, looking up in the sky, looking, looking around, and walking toward the edge of the Grand Canyon, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, hey, stop. Then you're going to be like, hey, hurry, man, you better stop. And they're just kind of like this, man, I'm going to tackle that guy. If my, my wife or somebody's walking toward the Grand Canyon, I'm taking her down. I'm not letting her walk off the cliff. I'm tackling them. And if someone's engaging in truly destructive behavior, that's what you do. You have an intervention. You convince them, you argue with them. You, then you shout at them, then you yell at them, then you tackle them to the ground. Why do you prosecute? Why do you do this? Why do you argue with them? Why do you tell them they're crazy? It's because you love them. That's the way it goes. The Bible tells us that the only way for the Spirit to get us acquitted from the guilt and power of evil in our life is to convince us of the guilt and the power of evil in our lives first. We have to be confronted with it. Before we're acquitted, before we're cleansed, before we're rescued, we have to be confronted with the fact that we're guilty. We need conviction. Quick examples here. Remember how the angel appeared to Mary? You guys know what I'm talking about? Angel appears to Mary and says, Mary, the Messiah is going to be born, and he's not going to be a mere human being. He's going to be the son of the living God. You're going to give birth to him, and he's going to bring salvation. And Mary kind of starts off with, um, uh, what? He, she says, how can these things be? Like, huh? In other words, she's a very normal person. <laughs> when she first hears the gospel, she thinks it's crazy. She thinks it's, it's impossible. In fact, um, I'll say right now, one of the best ways for you to be sure you really heard the gospel for the first time, one of the best ways you've actually heard the gospel is you need to go through a period of like, what's going on? What is this? This is too good to be true. I want you to understand something, that in this conviction, the Holy Spirit can even start his conviction in your life with a simple questioning that you ask. How can this be? This is crazy. Is this really true? In many cases, that's the beginning of the work of the Spirit. That's the way the Spirit works. Convicting you means suddenly you might start having questions. Maybe that's you today. You're astonished by the love Christians around you have shown you. Maybe you're shocked. Maybe you've been coming to church and you've heard some of our messages. Maybe this is your first time ever in church. Maybe somebody's brought you here. And you're hearing these things about God and love and the Holy Spirit and the move, and you're like, what's going on? And all of a sudden you have these questions, and it's convicting you. Maybe your worldview is being challenged. Maybe there is something to this. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Do you guys hear that? I love the fact that the Holy Spirit can start off by working with you just by giving you questions, challenging where you're at, challenging your worldview, challenging the way you think, challenging the way you perceive the universe and reality around you. And the Holy Spirit work in you could be something as simple as, wait a minute, could that be? Wait a minute, could I really be known? Could I really be loved? Could I really have purpose? Wait a minute, what have I been thinking? Why have I been thinking this way this whole time? Another example of the Holy Spirit convicting is David. You guys know the story of King David? I always, most people like to keep the story of King David being like David was this awesome shepherd boy, killed a, killed a giant and then became a great king, right? That's how I like to leave the story of David because David's pretty awesome, right? 
But David is messed up pretty big. Am I right? You guys know this, right? You know, I'm not sharing anything. Like, honestly, like, I, hate to, I hate to even talk about it sometimes because it's such a big mess up that I can't even comprehend it. You know, it's one of those mess ups I'm like, dude, like, like you, don't, you can't show your face kind of mess ups. And the, the, a prophet goes to David and tells a story. Tells a story about this other person's sin. And David's like, oh, that person is terrible. And the prophet's like, that's you. Whoa, big reveal. And David's like, that is me. Oh no. And he's torn and he, his heart enters into true conviction. I want you to hear this. The prophet brought forth the accusal, but the spirit brought forth true conviction. The accuser was there. The, the, the prophet came forward and be like, dude, this is what you're doing. But what did the work in his heart was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit convicted his heart and spoke, cross-examined him and said, David, the lie that you're living, the saying that because you're king, you get whatever you want. The lie that you're living says you're above judgment. The lie that you're living, whatever it may be, whatever you're believing, he's saying, let me cross-examine that. Let me let you know that's not true for you. I'm going to put that on the witness stand. I'm going to put your, your worldview on the witness stand. I'm going to put the way you look at your life on the witness stand. And let me tell you, it's crumbling, isn't it? And when it crumbles, it crumbles hard. And David's broken. And he's struck down. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're broken over the stuff that you've done. Maybe you're here today and you're realizing, man, there's something going on in my heart and the way I've lived and the way I've chased after everything but God and the way I've treated people and the way I've been. My heart, there's something happening. I don't like who I am. There's something going on and in my heart, I used to not care the fact that I hurt people, but now I don't want to hurt people and I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I've become. Can I tell you something? That's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to you. Because when he brings conviction, he doesn't do it to hate you. He doesn't do it because he doesn't like you. He does it because you're running towards the Grand Canyon and he's tackling you down. He does it because you're living in self-deluded, self-destructive ideas and worldviews. And he's saying, I gotta rip those apart. Let me, come, let me make you come face to face with that. Because then he does the second part, his second part of his mission, which is he guides you into all truth. So if that's you here today and you're feeling broken down by the Spirit, can you hear this part? He guides you into truth. He's wrestling you down. He's breaking you down. He's making you broken over the stuff that's happening because he wants to rescue you from the cliff that you're walking towards. And then he guides you into all truth. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. The second part of the mission of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth. Remember in this text, the disciples are overcome by the fact that Jesus is saying, I'm going away. So this whole discourse, the disciples are like, oh man, Jesus is going away, where are you going? And he's saying, I got a house, I'm prepared for you, a big, big house. And he's, they're saying, it's going to be okay. Jesus is like, dude, calm down, it's okay, it's okay. About 10 times he seems to have said this, I'm going away. And they're sad, they're despondent, and it's understandable. But Jesus says, it's only as I leave you that you'll come to me and that I want you to know me. In other words, it's only when I leave you that you're going to get something better. There's more about him that we're going to need to know. But we're not able to know it now. Only when the Spirit comes will we know it. So Jesus is literally saying, it's better that I'm going away so that you can know me more fully. Which seems kind of crazy. But what's he talking about there? What, is, what does it mean that, to know him more fully? What is he talking about here when the Spirit guides us in all truth? I believe first and foremost, he's talking about how the Spirit works 
through Scripture. Do you hear me? First and foremost, he's talking about how the Spirit works through Scriptures. He's talking about the way the Holy Spirit will take some of these very disciples like John and Peter and James, and through them will bring to the church some of the Gospels and some of the first epistles that we've been studying ever since we first came to know Jesus Christ by faith, and as a consequence, have grown to know him more and more. As a result of his going away, do you understand that what he's saying needs to take your breath away? As a result of his going away, we're actually going to be nearer and closer to him. With the going away, the Holy Spirit comes. And with the Holy Spirit comes, comes the writing of the scripture, which allows us to know Jesus more. Do you get that? Do you guys, does anybody journal? Ever journal? Some of you guys journal? Journaling is really good. I wish I journaled more. I'll be honest, I am the worst journaler in the world. I'm just gonna be honest with you, because it'll be like, all right, day one, Lawrence's journal. And I write down stuff like, today was a good day. Then I'm like, I don't know what else to write. <laughs> I struggle, you know? Last week, um, we were at a memorial service, and um, Brandon, or he didn't share, but his brother, or was it his, his brother-in-law, read stuff out of Brandon's journal. And it was about his experience watching Caitlin. And it was so beautiful. Oh man, I'll tell you, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house because he just wrote about what a delight it was. Oh, she just pooped. Oh, I got to hold this precious girl. And I just wrote all about what it was like to be a father for her, to her the first time. And, Oh my gosh, it was so beautiful to hear his heart, to hear his insight, to hear, to be in where he was, what he was thinking, what he wanted to convey, what he felt. Honestly, if I was just his friend hanging out with him, I probably wouldn't have known that. It would have been hard to know all his thoughts, how he treasured the moments of her crying and being needing him. If I was just his friend who dropped off a meal every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. But all I can think of is he's busy with his kid. But because his heart was poured out onto a page, because of his mission, everything was poured out there, his, his mission of loving and watching his girl, I got to hear a little bit more of the insight of Brandon. A result of the, Jesus leaving, and the Holy Spirit coming, is we get the insight into more of who Jesus is because we now have scripture. Do you hear that? Now, don't get me wrong, guys. There's something about the idea of like, oh, I would love to just see Jesus face to face and I would love to, you know, just give him a hug and say, that's true, that's so good. But guys, what we have is, it needs to take your breath away. What we have is scripture. The very words of God, the heartbeat of who he is, his, his mission, his directive, his idea, his, his, the thoughts of who he is, the, the root of what he wants to communicate, the very nature of who God is, and the nature of who we are. We have the scriptures. Do we treasure it? Do we hunger for it? Like the way Nathan said. And do we understand that the Holy Spirit, first and foremost job as he guides us in truth, is he guides us into scripture. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit is revealing who Jesus is first and through scripture. The Holy Spirit also guides us in all truth in the application of the scriptures. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us to understand and write the mind and will of God in scripture. Without his aid, we could never do this usefully and profitably to our souls. The great promise of the New Testament is that all believers shall be taught by God. That's by John Owen, a great Puritan thinker. Now I'll say that again. 
It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us to understand aright the mind and will of God in the scripture. Without his aid, we could never do this usefully and profitably to our souls. The great promise of the New Testament is that all believers shall be taught by God. Is that incredible? Do you hear what he's saying? What literally what John Owen is saying is that it is the promise of the New Testament that the, a very teacher who makes scripture come alive to us, who reveals truth about who Jesus is and who God is to us, the very scripture is the very person of God himself, the Holy Spirit. That we have an incredible teacher with us. That we don't need the, all the professors and all the, the popes and the priests and pastors in the world. We, we're here, guys. Don't, don't get me out of a job or anything. There's, there's reasons for us to be here, too. But what we're saying is you in Scripture can be taught about God by God. Are you going to Scripture? Do you get that? Do you get that when you open up Scripture and as you're praying and as you're studying, the Holy Spirit is actually teaching you? Do you get that? How crazy is that? How powerful is that? That when you actually open up scripture, the Holy Spirit is teaching you. You have a personal tutor. His name is HS, the Holy Spirit. I kind of wanted to give it a nickname, but that doesn't go very well. HG, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. I don't know. I got to come with something better. But do you understand that? Please, please, please don't make light of that. Don't lose sight of that. You and the scriptures can learn about God because the Holy Spirit is teaching you. Back in the course of history, it's been said that, oh, you can't learn about God because you need a priest to teach you about God. That's been said before, right? I've heard it even said that, oh, you're a kid, you can't learn about God. Oh, you're a woman, you can't learn about God. Or whatever, all this kind of stuff. Can I tell you, that's false. The promise of the New Testament is that God himself is revealing scripture to you. He is your teacher. John Owen also says that scripture is the rule and the Holy Spirit is the guide. The Holy Spirit's way of guiding us into the truth is by first giving us scripture and then guiding us in understanding and applying that scripture. We need the Holy Spirit when we read and process scripture. Are you asking him to help make the scriptures come alive for you? Are you asking the Holy Spirit to help you memorize and bring light to the word of God when you need it? Are you asking him to be your teacher and your guide? Let's not forget the second person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, one, convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit, two, guides them into truth. He points them to scripture. He makes the scripture come alive and he points them into the truth that we can, of the gospel. I always say this, and I, I don't think I haven't said this in a while, so for those of you guys keeping track of me always saying this, I feel like it's been a little bit, so it's okay. But I always say the human condition is that as human beings, we all want to be known, we all want to be loved, and we all crave purpose. The Holy Spirit, here's what the Holy Spirit does. He says, I know the human condition, so I'm going to guide you into truth because it convicts you. Holy Spirit says, hey, you're searching for all these things. You're searching for meaning. You're searching for the answer of the human condition and everything else. But it convicts you and says, those things won't work. Those things won't satisfy. Those things are not meaningful. It's self-destructive. So it convicts you of that. Then it points you to Scripture. And in Scripture, you see uh, uh, the gospel, and the gospel message that you can be known because God made you in the image of him. You can be known because 
could also be loved because the sin that you committed that separated you from God, Jesus took upon himself upon the cross. He died in your place so that your very righteousness is Christ's righteousness. And you can be known and you can be fully loved by God and that he's called you to purpose, to advancing his kingdom and changing the world from a dog-eat-dog world to a dog-eat-dog world. Bunch of waypoint stuff I just said there, I'm sorry. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, go ask somebody else. But the Holy Spirit does that. He takes you from conviction and points you and guides you to the light. And he does it because his glory, his mission, his third part is to glorify Jesus. Verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. How does the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus? The following I'm going to read to you guys really quickly is from Robert Pierce and Sinclair Ferguson. And it's a quick overview of salvation and how the Holy Spirit binds us to Christ. It's a little bit of systematic stuff, so bear with me, but it's good stuff. The most important work of the Holy Spirit in the realm of salvation is union with Christ. Each person of the Trinity plays a role in this union. The Father planned to join us to the Son before creation. The Son is crucial in the union because it is union with Christ. And the Holy Spirit joins us to the Son's person and savings accomplishment, saving accomplishments. By grace, through Spirit-generated faith, we become participants in Jesus' story, chiefly his death and resurrection. And participation in Christ's saving deeds brings us salvation and its many expressions. I want you to hear this. The chief worker in the faith union with Christ is the Holy Spirit. So you see, the Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ by being the one who binds us to him and keeps us abiding in Christ. 1 John 2, 20, 24, 27. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as the anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus by keeping us, the word here is abiding in him, and in so doing reveals more about Jesus than we would ever get if we were face to face. This is all that we need to accomplish a task. This word, guys, I want you to hear this. This word abiding is the same as this word. It's just like a dwelling in, being sealed to, being connected with. The Holy Spirit binds us to Christ. He's the glue, the suture, the binding agent. Not our own power of clinging to Jesus. It's not our own power that is able, allows us to cling to Jesus. He is the very grip of God holding us. In other places in scripture, he's called the seal. Our seal. Let me put it to you this way, guys. Um, I was one day dropping off my son Hudson at a daycare. And usually he's pretty good about coming to preschool here. Not preschool. Why do I say preschool? Children's ministry. Sorry. He's really good about coming to children's ministry here, dropping him off. He loves playing with his friends. But for some strange reason, this one day, Hudson was like, no, I just want to be with dad. And I'll be honest with you, I loved it. Just be honest. Right? So I'm dropping him off. And I kid you not, he's monkey gripping me legs, arms, like just attached, right? And like the teacher's like trying to yank on him. And I'm like, just, he's just, I'm like trying to push him off, but he's like monkey gripping full on. And I was like, oh, I kind of like this too. You know, but no, no, I gotta go to church, I gotta go to church. So he's monkey gripping me and he's holding on to dear life, just absolutely uh, holding on to me. But can I tell you something, guys? That's what I think sometimes we think that we're doing to God. 
Sometimes we think, no, God, I'm just holding on. I'm just holding on for dear life. I'm not going to let go, God, because I need you, God. I'm not going to let go. I need you, God. I'm just holding on. We're like Hudson. But can I tell you something? No matter what, what's going to hold Hudson closer to me is not his monkey grip, but it's my grip back to him. Because when he did that, guys, the first thing I did was like, oh, I love this so much. I just picked him right back up in my arms, and I just held him close. And can I tell you, there is no power that can take that kid away. See, his monkey grip is... You know, his bucket grip is strong, but it's not that strong. You know, a parent can pull him away, a teacher can pull him off. But my grip, uh uh-uh. Nobody's pulling my son away from me. Can I tell you something? How does the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus? By being the very attaching, binding agent between the ones Jesus loves, the ones who are regenerate, us, to Jesus. He's the one that brings us to the Savior, to the one we need. He's the one that applies Jesus' holy works that he did upon the cross and applies it to us. He is the seal. He is the agent. He is the grip that brings us to Jesus. And there's nothing stronger than his grip. There's no heights, nor depths, no tribulations, no power on earth or under the earth that can separate you from that grip. I want to say the monkey grip of the Holy Spirit is stronger than anything else. And he keeps you with our Savior. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're, what you're searching for. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Maybe you're sitting here and you've heard this all before, but you're saying, but I need to know that I'm being gripped. Can I tell you that right now? Listen to me. You've tried to earn with your own power. Be like, I'm just holding on, God. I'm just holding on, God. He said, no, no, no. It's not by your own power. Stop. Not your power. I got you. Will you rest? I'm going to glorify Jesus. I got you connected to him. Will you rest that my grip is strong enough? I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here in the first place and the Holy Spirit is starting to do that conviction thing in you. And maybe you're here and you ask questions. You're thinking, okay, okay. My worldview says that Christianity sounds all well and good culturally, but that's not for me. My worldview says that there's a God, but he doesn't actually personally care. But then if a God doesn't personally care, how in the world do you answer the human condition needing to be known and needing to be loved and craving purpose? And so maybe you're asking questions and maybe you're thinking, maybe this could be it. Maybe there is an answer here. Maybe the Holy Spirit is guiding you to truth. Maybe you're here today and man, you've done so much and you think, oh, there's no way I can be forgiven. The Holy Spirit is breaking my heart and I've done way too much. Hear the truth. That what you've done, can I tell you, David's probably done worse. And what you've done, there's nothing bigger, nothing worse, nothing more powerful than the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And for every step that you think, oh, Lawrence, you don't understand. I've done so much. I've run so far away. Holy Spirit can do all the convicting he wants, but I'm so separate from God, you have no clue. Can I tell you, there's no distance that you've ever ran away from God that he hasn't chased after you. And redemption is yours when he guides you into truth. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is as he clings you, he grasps you, he attaches you to Jesus. And Jesus gets the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the mission and the work of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for bringing conviction to the world. God, we thank you for bringing conviction to our own hearts. 
God, thank you for arguing against the lies that we believe and speaking truth to us. As you guide us in the truth, may we hear and truly believe the gospel. God, that we're far worse than we ever think we or imagine we could be, but your love is so much more good than we could ever hope. Thank you. That is not dependent upon religious works, but fully upon the work of Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you for guiding us to that truth and attaching us to Jesus. You are our seal, you are our bond. Jesus be glorified. Holy Spirit, will you continue to move in our midst? As if anybody's in here, as we enter this last set of worship, and you're in any of those places that we talked about of questioning, of conviction, of que- wondering whether or not you're sealed, wondering who your staff before God, if you just anybody's in here in any way, shape, or form just wants to be affirmed and be lifted up in prayer, guys, we invite you to this worship set. Find people with the yellow lanyards on. Find people, the elders or the pastors. We want to pray with you. I encourage you to take this opportunity to let the Holy Spirit move in your life as we worship together. Jesus, we move in Jesus' name. Amen.